Now we have the privilege of turning to God's Word. We'll be looking at 1 Kings 18, reading verses 1 to 40. Almost certainly the best known of the events from the life of Elijah the prophet, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we named our son Luke Elijah. I don't know how you can't use the name Elijah when you're preaching on the prophets of Baal in just 12 hours, so that was an easy choice for us. So we'll be reading from 1 Kings 18, verses 1 to 40. Before we do that, let's pray. God of glory, God of light, we pray that you would shine your light upon this word, that it might be to us life. We might feast upon it as the bread of life, that you would reveal to us Christ, your power, your justice, your truth, your glory, and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings 18, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land. To all the springs and valleys, maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah. You were handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or a kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or a kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab, and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifteen each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. 
Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening service sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Elijah was kind of like a, a magician, a mystery man. He, 
appears seemingly out of nowhere to Ahab in the very first part of his life that we have recorded for us. He announces there's going to be no rain, there's going to be a famine until he says there's not going to be. Then he disappears and no one can find him. And now seemingly out of nowhere again, he appears again. But he appears not first to Ahab, he appears to Obadiah. Obadiah is a Hebrew name that means the servant of the Lord. Anytime you hear a name that ends in ah or ayah, it has the, the word Lord in it. So Elijah is the Lord is God. Zechariah is the Lord has heard. So Obadiah is a servant of the Lord, but he's also Ahab's prime minister. He's the, the highest ranking, most likely the highest ranking official in Ahab's regime. He's Ahab's right-hand man, but more importantly than that, he's God's secret agent. While Ahab and Jezebel are out trying to kill off all the Lord's prophets, right under Ahab's nose, Obadiah is hiding these prophets that his master wants to kill in caves. And even though the famine is severe and it's dry and there's hardly any food, he manages to smuggle enough food away to sustain the lives of these 100 prophets. He's quite the bold and courageous man. Of course, there's some irony here. While Ahab wants to kill the prophets, he wants to save the animals. And Obadiah is going to save the prophets. He doesn't really seem to care very much about whether Ahab's animals survive or not. There's a couple of quick things we can note here from Obadiah before we move on to the, the main event, so to speak, from the text before us. The first of which is that Obadiah has very good priorities. Obadiah has two masters. He has two lords. He has the Lord, who is his God, and he has Ahab, who is his king. And Ahab, who was his king, almost certainly would have required Obadiah to participate in the destruction of these prophets. And all the while, Obadiah is secretly disobeying that command in order to obey the law of love and obedience to his true, ultimate king. It reminds me of the book The Hiding Place. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the book The Hiding Place. If you're not, it's, it's a good read. It's not a difficult read. It's a pretty captivating book. But it's, a, it's about a woman named Cory Ten Boom, and she writes it. She lived in the Netherlands during World War II when the Nazis were occupying the Netherlands and trying to round up all the Jews. And they turned their, their house with its, with its watchmaker or clockmaker shop, they turned it into a a hiding place for Jews. They built all kinds of secret compartments in the wall and under the kitchen table and that sort of thing to hide these people when the Gestapo would come in to try to kill them. All the while, disobeying their government in order to save those who were being hunted by their government. Obadiah was Cory Ten Boom before Cory Ten Boom was Cory Ten Boom. But then secondly as well, we see that Elijah and Obadiah are very different. Elijah is the Lord's public, bold resistance to Ahab and his idolatry. Obadiah works behind the scenes in secret. Yet both are used of God in very significant ways for his purposes and for his people. You don't have to be an Elijah to serve the Lord 
in very significant way. But then the, the two main combatants of this great battle come face to face, Elijah and Ahab. And when Ahab sees Elijah, and he'd been hunting all over for Elijah, when Ahab sees Elijah, he says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And that phrase, you troubler of Israel, is more than just kind of a, a slander against him. It goes all the way back to Joshua chapter 7, when the, the Lord has that very same word said about a man named Achan. Now, the Israelites in Joshua 7 have just marched around the city of Jericho those seven times. The Lord collapses the walls and then they've rushed into the city, and the Lord, in giving them this city over to them, this great walled city, which they had no way on their own of getting into, the Lord says, because I have won this victory for you, and this is your first big victory in the promised land, I want you to honor me. Take none of the animals, take none of the silver, take none of the gold for yourselves. And they obeyed, except for one man named Achan. The Israelites go off to a much easier battle very soon after that, and they lose, and Joshua is distraught. If we can lose to these Canaanites, we should have just stayed in Egypt, he says to the Lord. The Lord says, no. Somebody took something that they shouldn't have, and it was Achan. He was the troubler of Israel, and he was to be stoned to death. And so Ahab, when he says to Elijah, you troubler of Israel, he's saying, you are like Achan and you deserve to die. But Elijah's not having it. Elijah says, it is not I. I am not the troubler of Israel. You, Ahab, you and your idolatry, you and your father's house, you are the true troubler of Israel. So now we have two very different perspectives they both think the other one is the cause of all of this grief that has come upon the people of Israel. And so now we're going to figure out who really is the troubler of Israel. And to figure this out, we're going to have a, a divine royal rumble. And Elijah sets the terms for it. He says, meet me at Mount Carmel and bring all 850 of these state-sponsored prophets. And we will see then what will happen. And so they do, and they meet at Mount Carmel. And when they do, there's a crowd. That makes sense. Wouldn't you like to see this event? This is far better than any of the football games that are going to be on later this afternoon, as interesting as they may be. And so the crowd begins to gather around this, and then Elijah begins to say more about what's going to happen. Before he gets into that, he addresses these crowds. They're fickle. You can see that they're fickle because when Elijah speaks to them, they say nothing in response. And he knows that these crowds go back and forth and back and forth depending on what's in it for them. If it's better for them to worship the Lord, they'll worship the Lord. If it's better for them to worship Baal, they'll worship Baal. And since you're liable to lose your head if you worship the Lord right now, they're worshiping Baal because it's much more convenient. There's more in it for them. But Elijah says... You can't go back and forth. You can't have it both ways. If the Lord is God, worship Him. If Baal is God, worship Him. Whoever is the true God, He is worthy of all your worship. And so give all your worship to who is the true God. And we're going to find out who the true God is. 
So each side gets a bull. And Elijah lets the prophets pick theirs, lest they think that he's rigged the situation. They get to pick theirs first. And he says, since there's so many of you, you guys can go first. Slaughter your bull, put it on the fire, and we'll see if your God answers with fire. This should have been no problem for Baal. Baal was the storm god. Baal sent lightning. It shouldn't be a problem to send fire down if you can send fire down whenever you want. It shouldn't have been an issue for Baal. And so you can kind of sense the confidence of these prophets of Baal. Boy, this is on our home turf. Mount Carmel was home turf for Baal. There's 850 of us. There's one of him. And this is a fire competition, and our god is the storm god. And so they begin to sing and shout and chant, and they do some dancing because they're trying to arouse the interest of Baal. They're trying to get his attention so that he will send fire. And they do this from morning until noon with no effect. No one hears. No one answers. And then one of the most amusing scenes, one of the most amusing happenings in all the Scripture comes about. Elijah begins to tease them. He begins to taunt them. He begins to try to humiliate them. Shout louder. He can't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe we should come back a week from now and have the contest again when he's available. Maybe he's off on a hunting trip. Maybe he's, maybe he's out working in the garden. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on the john. You may think that's a little bit of creative license, but the, but the phrase here, maybe he's busy, the best way to understand that is maybe he's on the john. Maybe he's busy with some sort of bodily function. Elijah is not very sensitive. If he was going to have a government job, he would definitely flunk his sensitivity training course. And he shouts and he makes fun because he notices, he recognizes something very important that while God makes man in His image, these people have made Baal in theirs. All the idols of the earth, whether ancient or modern, are simply gods made in our image. And so these prophets are not going to be outdone by this goofy-dressed prophet here of a defeated God whose king doesn't even worship Him any longer. And so they redouble their efforts. They start shouting even louder. They begin slashing themselves with swords and, swords and spears. And you can imagine the commotion that's going on. All the shouting, all the yelling, blood spurting kind of everywhere. This is a, a great commotion. They do this from noon until the time, maybe dinner time, and still we read the refrain again, no one hears, no one answers, no one cares. And so they begin the end of their ritual dancing, and they have no effect. Baal never answers. Then Elijah calls the people to himself. He begins to prepare his sacrifice. He puts it around the altar. Then he begins to dig a trench. And you can imagine the, the large group of the prophets of Baal, they're they're kind of laughing. They're stitching themselves back together probably from all their self-inflicted wounds and they're laughing. If, if all of our shouting, if all of our dancing, if the 850 of us crying out to our God who's a greater God, if, if we couldn't get our God to answer, how is this one guy of a defeated God on 
enemy turf, digging a trench, how is this going to work? Then Elijah goes one step farther and he begins to drench the slaughtered bull, not once, not twice, but three times with four jars of water. Do you see what Elijah's doing? He's stacking the deck against himself. He's, he's bringing loaded dice to the contest, but they're loaded against himself. Just consider all the, all the disadvantages he has. First of all, he is outnumbered 850 to 1. That's not very good odds. Secondly, his God is an enemy of the state. Their God is state-sponsored. Then you have home turf. Again, Mount Carmel outside of Israel. It's Baal's home turf. He had an altar there. The Lord's altar had been destroyed. And then finally, he drenches his sacrifice. But he goes one step further. They had danced and shouted and cut themselves. He's not going to do any of that. He's just going to pray very simply, very humbly, and let his God answer for himself. He does nothing to manipulate the Lord. You see what Elijah's doing. He wants everybody watching to know that when the fire comes, it's not Elijah's fire. God's fire. Elijah will receive no glory, but Elijah's God will receive all the glory from this magnificent event. And so Elijah prays, but he doesn't pray generically to some mystery God in the sky. He prays specifically to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Israel's God. He prays to that one And then as he prays, that one God answers. And the fire comes, licks up not only the sacrifice and the wood, but the stones and the water and the soil itself as well. Now the people are certain who the real God is. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They're very quickly on Elijah's side. They're probably worried that the fire is going to come for them next for their idolatry and their spiritual laziness. That's not the end of the story. The story here at least ends with Elijah saying to all these people who have gathered from all over Israel, see those prophets, those false prophets. Gather them together. Bring them to the valley and have them slaughtered. Did we just ruin it? What a fun story this was, right? False superstitious prophets defeated fire from heaven a simple prayer against the self-mutilation. I mean, this is something that people can kind of get behind, but then it just, ah, violence kills 850 people. Isn't this a little vindictive? Isn't he just kind of pouring it on or running up the score? I mean, you already won. Why you got to keep going? But he's not vindictive. He's obedient. He's obeying exactly what the law of the Lord had said. Elijah, a prophet, in many ways a prophet like Moses, is following the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5 says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. 
For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams will be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Elijah brings the people back to obedience to God, including the destruction of the false prophets. So what do we make of this? Well, the story ends. What do we make of it? I think there's really one main point to derive from this passage, and that's that you don't determine what is is. It is that you don't determine what reality is. Reality exists outside of ourselves, whether we believe it or not. Uh, what we think and how we feel does not change what is. Uh, think of a, a few examples here. First, Ahab and Elijah. Ahab thinks that Elijah is the troubler of Israel. He says it, he thinks it, he's convinced of it. Elijah thinks that Ahab is the troubler of Israel. He says it, he thinks that he's convinced of it. Yet they can't both be right. One is right and one is wrong. And in the course of events, you come to find that Ahab is wrong while Elijah is right. Secondly, the people. The people by this point, if they weren't convinced that Israel's God wasn't a real God, they were at least mostly convinced that he wasn't the strongest God that he was an inferior god to Baal. And they had been worshiping Baal, and they had probably been convinced that Baal was a real god. But just because they thought it, just because they felt it, just because perhaps they were convinced of it, didn't mean it was true. God was the real god. Baal was no god, even though they didn't believe it should be true. This is a, this is a, a concept a basic life premise which has been rejected in our civilization largely. The idea in our civilization is that you can mold and define your own truth. That's not how it works. Truth is truth whether I accept it or not. I might, I might tell you that I identify as a woman, but I am still a man. I might be convinced that I am actually a five foot two Native American. Doesn't change the fact that I'm a six foot seven white Caucasian. I might tell myself that it is okay to kill babies or the old or the handicapped or whatever. It doesn't change the fact that each of those people is stamped in God's image with an infinite amount of value, not because of what they are, but because of who God has made them to be. I might convince myself that everybody goes to heaven, but it doesn't mean that it's true. I might believe these things with every fiber of my being. But how strongly I am convinced of these things has no bearing on how true they are. So we see that in a number of ways. We can apply this in a number of ways. The first is God's existence. People may reject the existence of God. People may reject God's existence. They may say that science excludes God, which is not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. They may believe that it doesn't exist, but whether someone believes that God exists or does not believe does not change whether God exists. 
Either he does or he doesn't. In this case, he does. I might believe any number of religious things. I might believe there's a great ketchup and mustard God of the sky. No matter what I believe about it, it doesn't mean that it's true. God's existence is not dependent upon my assent to his existence or upon our culture's belief in his existence. Even if you were the very last person alive on the earth who believed in God, trusted God, obeyed God, it wouldn't change whether or not there was a true God or not. We might say as well, God's law. God's law is not dependent on me. I might say I believe something is right or something is wrong, but it doesn't change whether that something is right or wrong. It doesn't belong to us to dictate truth. It belongs to us rather to discern truth. I've been doing a deep dive study lately on uh, biblical, so to speak, biblical or so-called evangelical feminism and uh, open and affirming evangelicals. It's amazing how people can twist the Scriptures to make them say exactly the opposite of what they say and what the church has believed they say for thousands of years. But just because I twist the Scriptures to convince myself they say something doesn't actually overturn the plain meaning of what the Scriptures say. Or God's glory. God is glorious, whether I feel it or not. God is worthy of my worship, whether I feel it or not. I might be feeling low. I might be feeling discouraged. I might be feeling as though, I might be feeling as though everything has gone wrong in my life. It might take everything I have just to mouth the words to a song. It doesn't change the fact that God is worthy of worship. God is glorious. And even if we were to decide that it wasn't worth worshiping God, we would decide perhaps that other things were worth worshiping more, the beach, the game, the pillow, the hobby, whatever. Even if I decide God isn't worth my worship, it doesn't mean that. That's true. He is worthy of our worship. Or we could think perhaps of God's presence. God's presence. The prophets of Baal thought they could make their God be present if they shouted loudly enough, if they cut themselves deeply enough, if they would just do enough things, then their God would be present. But not Elijah. Elijah doesn't need to make God present. Elijah knows that God already is present. He simply has to pray to the God who already is there. We don't have to manipulate God into being with us. We don't have to do things to force God to take, take ear of us, to pay attention to us. God is here. Whether or not we feel it, we might feel very distant from God. We might feel as though God has forsaken us. We might pray the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't mean that He has forsaken us. How we feel about God's presence does not determine whether or not God is here. God is here whether we feel it or not. If you've been around uh, evangelical churches enough, you'll probably have been to one where every prayer is set to music. And you're playing the music while somebody's praying. And it's meant to make you feel like you're really praying. Like God is really here. As if somehow our, our emotions in this 
kind of this welling up feeling conjures up my presence for God and God for me. But whether or not you feel it or not, God hears your prayer. He is with you. We don't need to manipulate God into our presence. God is already with us. As He was with Elijah, so too He is present with us. And then justice. That's where the story ends here, isn't it? God's justice. God is just. And even if we might not believe it's so, have you ever heard something like this? I can't believe in a God who dot, dot, dot. I can't believe in a God who would flood the whole earth. I can't believe in a God who would rain fire and sulfur down on Sodom. I can't believe in a God who, who would kill the people of Jericho or have the prophets of Baal slaughtered. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I can't believe in that God. But the issue isn't whether you can believe in that God or not. The issue is whether that God exists or not. And whether you believe or not doesn't affect whether He is or not. I think most of those things we don't really have an issue with. I think most of us here at First Church would know that God's Word is God's Word, whether somebody accepts it or not. That God is, whether we accept it or not. That God is just, whether or not we accept it or not. I, I think we would probably have an easy time with that. I think what, ironically, I think what most of us here in a Reformed or Presbyterian church would have more of an issue is with God's grace. That God is gracious whether we feel it or not. Because we might not always feel the love of God. We might not always feel like God gives us grace. We might not always feel like God can reach down and save us from the depths to which we have plunged ourselves. We may, we may say to ourselves, that's it. I've gone too far. There's no going back now. There, there's no way that God can still love me. And that little voice from the devil says it's true. It's too far this time. You might as well just give up. And sometimes we just don't feel like God could love me. Like He could forgive that. Like He would still care about a wretch like But you can't redefine God's grace. Whether you feel that God is gracious, whether you feel that God loves you, doesn't affect whether He is loving you or whether He is extending grace to you. We don't get to redefine how gracious and how loving God is. God defines how gracious and how loving He is. That's the very heart of this passage. The heart of this passage isn't really on the, the justice against the prophets of Baal. The heart of the passage is what Elijah says. He prays that they may know that I am your servant, that I have done these things by your word, and that you are calling them back to yourself. The heart of the passage is God, through His prophet, coming to this terribly wicked and idolatrous people and saying, I want you, my people, back. And let me tell you, these are some disgusting people. 
They have worshipped fertility cults. This is a disgusting, rebellious, treasonous people. And I suspect that none of you have done anything worse than what they had done. And God still wanted them back. You don't get to define how gracious and loving God is. The cross of Christ defines how gracious and loving God is. And the cross says that God is infinitely gracious and loving for his people. Isn't that good news? That whether we feel it or not, there is grace for us. Whether we feel it or not, we are forgiven. And whether we feel it or not, there is no distance too great for us to run from God from which He cannot go and get us and bring us back. The cross, not you, the cross of Jesus Christ defines God's grace and God's mercy. And it is good. Let's pray together. God, some of us, like these fickle Israelites, may be in great need of someone to come and tell them that God wants them. That there is grace for them. That the one who has made them and impressed them with his image has also redeemed them. There may be some of us who need to hear that we have not run too far, that our fall has not been too great to leave us outside, outside of the reach of your grace. We know that you are. You tell Abraham, you are, I, I am, you are who you are. That you are not defined by anyone or anything. You, you are the essence of all being. So we do not define you, we do not change you, we do not manipulate you. And we are thankful that you, the one who is, that you would love us and unite us to yourself through Christ. So we pray that we would not be among those who face the judgment like the prophets, but that instead we would be those that Elijah speaks of who are being drawn back, redeemed, loved, objects of mercy and grace. Give this to us, we pray. In the name of Jesus.
who gives us all grace. Amen.